This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Matthew Ricard. Matthew is an author and photographer who earned a PhD in cell genetics. He is also a Buddhist monk who has served as the Dalai Lama's French interpreter since 1989. Matthew has written several books, including The Monk and the Philosopher, The Quantum and the Lotus, as well as The Art of Meditation. With Sounds True, he has released an audio learning program based on his book called Happiness, a guide to developing life's most important skill. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, I spoke with Matthew via Skype while he was at his monastery in Nepal quite late at night. We discussed the skill of happiness as well as the conditions for happiness. We also discussed the physical and psychological effects of meditation, along with ways to track the progress you make in your spiritual practice. Here's my conversation with Matthew Ricard. You talk and write about happiness as a skill. And since I heard you introduce that idea that happiness is a skill, honestly, I've been thinking about it very deeply ever since. I think most people think about happiness as something that descends from the clouds, if you're lucky. How is it a skill? Well, there are two things that puzzles me. When, when people say, well, you know, you cannot define happiness because it's very personal. And then, uh, then the second uh, thing that I find also puzzling, when people say, you know, happiness just comes like a magic moment and you cannot cultivate it. If you look for it, then you are sure that you won't find it. So I think there's just two misunderstandings. Uh, one of them is that uh, happiness is very personal. That means somehow that there will be... A, that I think it's a confusion between, uh, you know, kind of uh, pursuing our fancies or the way we would like the world to be. So I would be happy, you know, if I had a big house or this and that and have a good... So all kinds of mostly outer conditions. And all, you know, I'm just happy when I play the violin. But then it's very narrow. I, I, you know, I read uh, things in, 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 in magazines. Oh, happiness for me is to eat a, a good plate of macaroni or something like that. So, of course, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a bit sad to hear that. But so, so I think if we think of happiness as a way of being, you know, as something that, that is, uh, represents uh, a state of flourishing, of fulfillment, uh, of a way of being that produced through all events in life, even all different kinds of, of emotions and mental states, uh, something that gives you the inner resources to deal with whatever comes your way, even you know, pleasant, unpleasant circumstances, uh, helpful circumstances, adverse circumstances, some kind of platform or way of being that's behind all that and that gives you the resources to deal with all that. So then, if it's something that sort of uh, pervasive, then it's 
it's, it's not something that is so personal, that is uncommunicable with others. I think it comes with a cluster of quality. There's no such thing as happiness as an isolated quality or skill. It is, a, it is a skill, but it's a skill that has many components, and each of those components are say, constructive ways of being, like altruistic altruism or um, benevolence, compassion, uh, inner peace, inner strength, inner freedom, in the sense of uh, freedom from uh, being carried away by, by all kinds of wild uh, chain reactions of thoughts uh, due to craving or to hatred or all that. So it is a real freedom to maintain your inner peace. So all those together uh, make a way of being that, I think, characterizes authentic happiness. So it is a skill because each of those uh, factors, like altruistic love can be cultivated, you know, a, a greater inner strength can be cultivated. There are ways to cultivate uh, skills uh, to be free from uh, being overwhelmed by afflictive emotions. So all those combined makes, we could say, a general skill that is a resulting skill and that is authentic uh, well-being or happiness. How do I make sure when I'm cultivating something like altruism that I'm not just sugarcoating my experience? So, for example, I say, I'm going to cultivate being generous. I am giving giving, giving, but really underneath, I don't really feel it, but I'm just acting the part. Cultivating generosity is not uh, fundamentally by giving. It's by cultivating, cultivating uh, generosity as an inner quality, and then naturally the giving will follow up. I mean, you, you don't start by the action. You start by the motivation, and motivation is something that can be cultivated. Otherwise, if it's just mechanically giving, then you could have a robot that gives away money all around and is definitely not going to be generous. So generosity is a state of non-grasping that is combined with a genuine concern for others, uh, a reduced uh, feeling of self-centeredness and self-cherishing uh, in the sense of an egoistic way, and then naturally the outcome of that is that spontaneously, joyfully, naturally, you will be uh, just uh, being so concerned that it's a joy to give to others. Of course, if it becomes like uh, uh, something that is against your nature, that against your feeling, that makes you feel miserable, <laughs> then simply you are not generous. You are just forcing yourself with some kind of weird idea of duty or I don't know what. So... It is the inner quality that you need to cultivate first, and then this, the, the expression in speech and action will just naturally follow. The mind is the, the king. Uh, the speech and the, uh, the activities are the servant. Uh, so the servants are not going to tell the king how it should be. The king has to change, and then the other ones follow up. Now, you mentioned this very important thing, cultivating the right motivation. Can you speak more about that? How do I do that? First of all, you know, in terms of actions and consequences of our action, it's very hard to predict all the consequences of our action in the short term and even less in the longer term. So if ethics was only uh, based on the way the actions look and the, their ultimate consequences, then they would be very hard to 
uh, be sure that one is uh, engaging in ethical action. But you can always check your motivation. So, you know, very simply, uh, is it totally selfish or is it uh, motivated by a genuine sense of concern for the well-being, for the suffering of others? And then, is it for the small number, say those who are dear to me or treat me well, or is it for a greater number, I mean all sentient beings, whom, out of whom nobody wants to suffer, and all of them wants to find happiness, even they are very, sometimes very unskillful themselves about the way to find happiness, but fundamentally, deep within, no one wakes up in the morning thinking may suffer the whole day. So that sense of concern, and then so is it for the smaller number or the greater number? Is it for the short term or for the long term? Is it just to make someone happy right now? Like, I don't know, giving a, a drink to someone who's already drunk? Or, or just thinking of the long term of that person's health. So just to have the most, the, the best you can, the most altruistic, uh, taking all what you can know in consideration, and then the rest is out of your control. You know, what's going, actually going to happen in the long term, you cannot predict, you cannot mass control that, but the motivation, whether you are extremely well informed or not, whether you are extremely smart or a little bit less smart, uh, you can always check your motivation honestly, sincerely, deep within. We say that it, we are the best person to look in the mirror in our, of our mind. So our motivation is something that we can have access to, that we can check, that we can improve, that we can correct, and we can infuse with altruism, with concern for others, and with less self-centeredness. Now, I know in the process of writing your book on happiness that you studied the factors that contribute to happiness from a sociological perspective, looking at many different studies that were done where people reported about their own happiness, whether they had money or they didn't have money, whether they were married or not married. And I'm curious what you learned about happiness from these sociological studies. Well, the main thing I learned is if, uh, you know, there are all these studies that tell you that. But then, what's I think most interesting are the so-called meta-studies, those who consider all those factors pulled together. And then they conclude that, in the end, all these outer conditions barely contribute to 15% of what we could say are the various components of our well-being. So, in fact, even though you know, there might be a, a quite a significant difference whether, you, I don't know, you are uh, uh, alone or with the friends and family and so forth. But still, this is only a, 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 a small fraction of the contributory factors. And uh, there are there's a few factors from genetics, but I think the main factors are the inner conditions. You know, because it's quite clear you know, the other conditions, uh, you know, you have very little control over them. Um, they are changing all the time. And uh, they are often, uh, you know, it's, it's often an illusion to think that we are in control. And, and also, the, the, the way you translate the outer conditions into inner experience, uh, that's what really matters. Because your inner state of mind can easily override and eclipse the outer condition. That means that 
you can be miserable if when everything seems to be fantastic outside, you know, you are in a kind of little paradise and yet you are completely depressed and, you know, feel so terrible in, within. And then you can, at the opposite, you know, if it's full of joie de vivre and uh, a sense of uh, every moment is uh, valuable and is worth living. And even if uh, in the face of adversity or circumstances that people a priori would not wish for. So that is clear. Uh, no, so why are we putting so much effort to either gather all the favorable condition, get rid of unfavorable out, outer condition? Of course, we should do the best we can. But why do we so much neglect the cultivating of the inner condition that nourish this sense of fulfillment and flourishing and also why do we spend so little time to get rid of the inner condition that undermine uh, well-being you know like animosity and arrogance and envy and craving and so forth I, I want to talk specifically about the envy and craving that I think a lot of people experience that creates unhappiness for them I've heard that one of the biggest factors in unhappiness is this sense that I want something that you've got, this comparing mind. What can we do about that? I just have to make an <laughs> honest assessment of the effect of it. You know, people say, so when people say, oh, no, you know, all these passions and jealousy and all that, you know, that makes a colorful life, that makes a strong personality. I say, okay, fine. Okay, let's, uh, let's stay, spend a weekend together to cultivate uh, jealousy, you know, so that you'll be 30% more jealous at the end. You know, immediately you, you back up and say, oh, hey, hey that's not <laughs> what I want to achieve. Now you feel there's something that you certainly do not want to, uh, even though you say that's what makes the wish, that's a fullness of existence. So we know that those things torment us. And when we are uh, under the sway of those, you know, even we want to get to get them clear our mind from them, then they still come back. So, if we had a a way to let them be sort of fade away or dissolved, and then I think we'll be much better off. So that's what exactly what the various techniques of techniques of mind training are providing is antidotes. Uh, with to these afflictive mental states is to learn not to um, uh, identify ourselves with this uh, negative mental state. Like, you know, if we have the flu or if we have a fever, you say, I have the flu or I suffer from the flu. You don't say, I am the flu. But when we are filled with anxiety or jealousy or craving, it seems that we are the craving. So we, are, we identify with it. So there's ways. Uh, with mindfulness, not to identify with, with, with craving. And you can have the gaze of mindfulness, of awareness, looking at uh, anxiety or envy or craving. And what is aware of craving is not craving, it's just aware. So if you create that space of awareness, and it has a tendency to grow, and at the same time, the uh, craving has a tendency to to sort of vanish. So there's a whole uh, skill that you can uh, achieve by a minimum of mind training. It's not that complicated. It doesn't require years and years and years of practice. It simply requires that you 
take a little more care of that spoiled brat of your mind. Now, what do you mean it doesn't require years and years and years of practice? Well, I mean, the more you do it, of course, the more you become skillful. You know, like uh, someone who learns how to walk on a tightrope, then after some time you can dance, you can do all kinds of fancy things. But at least, you know, a minimum of training allows you to, 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 you know, to, to, do, to, to have some already beginning skill. And, and it's a huge difference. You know, uh, even you are not a champion or... Uh, on the bicycle, you know, an Olympic champion, but it's a huge difference to know how to uh, to go on a bicycle and not and to be unable to to ride a bicycle. So once you know how to ride a bicycle, you can do already a lot of things, and that doesn't require that much of a training. When you speak of mind training, you're speaking specifically about meditation. Is that what you mean? It's just the same. It's the same word actually. It's just like meditation is considered to be like an oriental, some more or less ex exotic word, but if you look at the uh, words uh, in the West, in um, Eastern languages that we translate in Western languages by meditation, at least in the present context, uh, there are words like bhavana in Sanskrit, it means to cultivate precisely, and uh, there's a word in Tibetan, uh, which is uh, gom, that means to become familiar uh, with something. So, uh, you can become familiar with the new way of experiencing the world. You can become familiar or cultivate uh, compassion. You can become more familiar with the notion of uh, the impermanence of uh, that everything changes at every instant, although you are not so familiar because you were sort of grasping to things as being permanent before. So all those are familiarization on one side to be more attuned to reality as it is, not to just constantly distort reality, superimpose on reality. And on the other side, to become more familiar with those skills that at the beginning are quite feeble and uh, difficult and require a lot of effort and attention. And with time, they become natural and uh, stronger and uh, better. You know, when you see a consummate uh, skier or horse rider, he does difficult things with great ease and without being tired. So that's a sign of a skill. In the beginning, everything is difficult. You get immediately tired and you're always sort of a bit nervous about it. So that's precisely the state of a beginner. It seems that when you talk about something like the destructive emotion of feeling envious of what other people have and then you see how this makes you feel inside that you're applying a kind of analysis to that. Like, just look, investigate, see what actually comes from that, and then, quote-unquote, drop it. Like, once you can analyze it properly, you can just walk away. Is that what you're saying? Well, in the beginning, you need, because, uh, uh, you know, it's an analysis, but it's a very pragmatic analysis. You know, there's nothing of a, like a, a moral judgment, or is this bad to be... A craving or it's bad to be jealous. No, nobody has, it's nothing, there's no good and evil as absolute. It's just the good, the good and bad it does in terms of happiness and suffering. So you see, see people say I have to have a powerful, triumphant me. I say, go for it. You know, if it really feels good, then why not? But if you cultivate me, me, me all the time, and then what you will feel? You will feel miserable in the end. So then, just have to experience it, and then just by yourself. 
if you think that jealousy is so great, then just go for it. You know, think of it all day long and see what happens. Now, compare that with cultivating for a few hours altruistic love, or generosity, or some kind of uh, freedom of uh, to this uh, chain reaction of thoughts, and then see how how you feel. You have to experience those, otherwise, you know, it's not a dogma. Nobody is, is as can force you to change your mind. It has to come from a genuine enthusiasm that comes from appreciating the uh, positive effect of something, you know, the benefit of something. Without that, why should why should you do it? We are not. We don't have to obey any anyone's order. We are not trying to do that to please anyone or to get some kind of reward or or here or some afterlife or whatever. If you really want to um, uh, clearly understand the mechanism of happiness and suffering, is by trial and errors. So just look honestly at the effect of, of strong craving, of malevolent anger or hatred. See the devastating effect it has on yourself, on others. At the opposite, see what some of those positive emotions, how much they bring to others, sort of well-being, how for yourself, they help to your own flourishing, like the twofold benefit of others and yourself. So in a way, a win-win situation. Why pursuit of a selfish happiness is a lose-lose situation. You're miserable, you make others miserable. So just have to see, there's nothing mysterious about that. Mm-hmm. Now, I know, Matthew, that you were one of the meditators that has been studied in a laboratory context and that your brain has been studied, hooked up to wires, uh, MRIs and EEGs. What did they discover about your brain in the laboratory? Well, they just found that I still have a brain, which is uh, temporarily very (laughs) nice. But, uh, well, you know, I I just was, uh, again... uh, uh, in Delhi with a group of scientists and Richard Davidson, who is the main res- uh, head of the research group in Madison, Wisconsin, was also here in Nepal until uh, until the day before yesterday. So it's a long, it's very long-term and wonderful collaboration, I would say. And uh, it was spurred, uh, it, it was um, inspired by Sonesa Dalai Lama, who has always been very uh, keenly interested in science, because he sees science as a honest, rigorous uh, investigation of reality and very empirical and pragmatic. And so he was interested in all branches of science, but especially neuroscience and psychology, uh, of course, relates particularly closely with what we call contemplative science, which is the, the training of mind, meditation, understanding the nature of mind, training of those wholesome qualities. So it was very natural that... Uh, a collaboration would ensue, and this begins about seriously about almost eleven years ago, following uh, one of the Mind and Life Institute uh, meeting in uh, two thousand uh, in Dharamsala, uh, the seat of the Dalai Lama in India, on destructive emotion. So the Mind and Life Institute now almost twenty five years of existence. It was uh, founded by. Francisco Varela, a great uh, neuroscientist, and Adam Engel, a U.S. A US businessman and lawyer, and uh, we're still the chairman now of Mind Life. And the idea was to bring together great scientists and the Dalai Lama. But then in 2000, it took another turn in terms of starting a, 
serious research. So they begin by looking at long-term meditators because obviously if there were some change to be found in the brain, you expect to find them with them. And if we don't find anything, then there's no point studying people who have done it for a few weeks. So they studied a, a, a group of uh, people who had done between 20 to 50,000 hours of meditation. And those are absolutely not only monks, they are lay people, they are equally equal number of men and women uh, who did uh, sometimes three, sometimes nine years retreat. Or, so they are experienced meditators. So down there they found very remarkable uh, results. You know, whether they engage in focused attention, in the compassion or loving kindness meditation, in mindfulness meditation, uh, they could activate very powerfully specific areas of the brain which were related to positive emotions, to attention, uh, or to whatever. So that showed that, um, you know, there were clearly a functional change in the brain due to training. Because if you compare that with uh, age-matched novices who have tried just for a week, uh, there's, there's huge difference of activation. So now, that was uh, very interesting, but of course, of limited use to society because very few people are going to go off uh, in, in the hermitage for 20,000 hours. But now, the second wave of study, uh, after the first one, uh, I mean, the first one is still going on, the fundamental research, there are a lot of publication in very good uh, scientific journals. But the second waves of study has to do with what are the effects of eight weeks of meditation on mindfulness or on loving kindness. And, so, and what are the clinical applications of such uh, uh, training? So then there's uh, many studies now uh, which have also shown that even in eight weeks of, uh, say for instance, the mindfulness-based stress reduction technique of John Kabat-Zinn, MBSR, or loving-kindness meditation, um, brings enormous change. Uh, not only in your faculty of mindfulness or your prosocial behavior, but also uh, physically, in your immune system, uh, in your mood, in your all kinds of things. Uh, the, the way you are reacting to inflammation, which uh, your general level of anxiety, your uh, vulnerability to depression, all kinds of uh, things have been studied. And I think there, you could really conceive that in a circular way, those techniques can definitely bring uh, make a very, a, a very beneficial contribution to society. In talking about the number of hours, as you said, most people won't have an opportunity in their life to meditate for 20,000 to 50,000 hours. But do you believe this statistic that's now being thrown around that 10,000 hours is some kind of passage point, that past 10,000 hours, that's when real mastery happens of certain skills, including potentially the skill of happiness? The, when we look at the experienced meditators and certain uh, parameters like the amplitude of uh, gamma waves that they generate when engaging in compassion meditation, it precisely showed that the more they have hours of meditation, the more that is powerful. So it's a linear progression. The more you meditate, the better you get at it, and that's for your life long. Uh, but, um, you know, if we just consider what is uh, in other fields, like say music, it's just a kind of statistics that you know when a 
a, a, a musician plays first public concert, usually they have about 10,000 hours behind them. So it's more in those fields that those numbers have come, but they are just, uh, they, they don't constitute a threshold. It's just like, uh, say, where some kind of, you could say that person has, has mastered something, but definitely, I don't know about music, but about meditation, it seems that the more you do, the more you improve. But this being said, uh, there is a, a strong uh, change uh, right from the beginning, uh, from not doing any mind training to engaging in eight weeks of mind training. That's already makes a huge difference, and that's I think what is wonderful, because there you can see that it could benefit so many people. And just because I want to understand it a little more precisely, when they measured your brain, what exactly did they find? that might be differently? What parts of the brain were lit up in a different way? Well, first of, of all, it's not just uh, my brain. They don't, um, they don't keep, uh, they don't, it's not scientific to, to keep, uh, you know, associating okay, people yeah. with uh, subjects. So they subject A, B, C, D. So, but what they found very consistently across long-term meditators, well, you know, every type of meditation has a specific brain signature. Uh, if you, if you train on focused attention, and some of these are extremely good at that, you know, the whole network, which is known to be related to attention, is activated, but is much more activated than in novices who have not trained. And there are many ways you can test your attention, like sustained vigilance, or you know, maintaining an equal quality of attention, uh, the faculty that you are not distracted by the usual type of distractor that you can have sounds, emotional uh, noises, and so forth, all kinds of things. Uh, there are other ways, you know, like um, uh, will meditation help you to be less sensitive to physical pain or to be less uh, emotionally shaken by physical pain or to have less anticipation of the pain that um, makes you feel pain even before the pain is there, all kinds of things like that. Uh, for instance, the meditation on compassion uh, is activating area of the brain, like the insula, the prefrontal cortex, and others, which are known to be related to empathy, uh, to positive emotions. Uh, so, you now all this slowly builds up the picture. There's still a lot to to do uh, uh, to research, but clearly. So far, everything seems to be building a, a very coherent picture and, and uh, showing uh, you know, how those skills can be cultivated and that uh, they all have the specific signature. So you can uh, continue the study and precise and refine our knowledge of emotions and our knowledge of how those can be cultivated as skills and can benefit uh, people. Now, you mentioned that they can find through scientific studies that the more you meditate, that it's, it's a linear, ever-deepening process. But I'm, I'm curious now from your own internal experience of happiness, your own subjective experience, how you would track that through your mind training life. Were there moments where you said, oh my God, now I've discovered something. Oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm even happier now. I'm even ha how would you track it internally? And I mean, again, you know, happiness is not one thing. It's just like a, it's like an emerging thing out of all those different qualities. Yeah. And also, you know, 
the real progress is a slow progress. Uh, all these mystical experiences like, uh, like fireworks, uh, fireworks has the characteristics to then vanish very soon. So it's more like, you know, uh, watching the, the arms of a big clock. When you gaze at it, it seems it's not moving. If you look at it from time to time, then you see it has moved. So if you look back, compare, say, to 10 years ago or 20 years ago, and you can see how much or less vulnerable you might be to anger, to uh, reacting with animosity, uh, how much more genuine sense of concern you have for others, like joy of altruism, of compassion, you know, that you are so happy when you give everything you have, then it's great, you know, it's not a sacrifice. Why, why should you mortify, I mean, make yourself miserable to be generous? But if it's like such a wonderful thing, and then you can see, oh, you know, I've, uh, I've gone a few steps further in making that, that quality bloom. So it's a gradual process, but from time to time you see that it's become more full, more deeper, more uh, constant, that it can withstand uh, outer changes and uh, sometimes adverse circumstances. Uh, now we say that uh, it is very easy to be a good meditator if you are basking in the sun with a full belly, but it's when the circumstances become difficult that we can really judge a meditator. So that if in face of difficult circumstances you keep your inner strength, your inner peace, your inner freedom, then you can say, okay, well, little progress has been done. Now, you're talking about happiness, and I think you're making a really important point that it's this combination of these different factors. It's not one thing. Maybe it's the net result of all of these different factors put together. And I'm curious, in your own life, has one of the factors of happiness been the most challenging for you? Mm, not especially. I mean, there's some which have been the, more help, the most helpful. And I think that uh, the more I, I go... Uh, the more I'm inspired uh, by the example of Sister Dalai Lama, who over I've seen over the last you know 25 years that I've been fortunate to serve him as a, being his disciple and serve as interpreter, uh, that he's put more and more and more emphasizes on altruistic love and compassion. And for me, I feel deeply, especially now that I'm also, you know, for the last 10 years, I'm, most of my time is spent in the pursuing some humanitarian projects that loving, altruistic love and compassion are the most, the strongest uh, contributing factor to genuine happiness. That I'm really con deeply convinced of that and I'm really inspired to, to even as very little uh, for the time being, but to continue to develop those and cultivate those and I have strong confidence that this is the the right path, even I'm still really sincerely and without any false humility, consider myself as a complete beginner, but at least I feel I'm a beginner on the right track. Now somebody might say, you're a beginner and you've meditated for somewhere between 20,000 and 50,000 hours? Yes. So what? We breed from, from birth to, we breed from the birth to death, uh, so whether we should be content with just a little bit of meditation, I mean, all the great teachers of the past, they say that 
may the duration of your practice be the duration of your life. So, so you know, there's a long way to go, but what's the problem? Best, once you're feeling you are in the right direction, it doesn't matter if the road is long or short. Wonderful. I've been speaking with Matthew Ricard. He is a monk living in Nepal, staying up uh, into the late hours of the evening to speak with us here on Insights at the Edge about happiness, a guide to developing life's most important skill, which is the name of the audio program that Matthew has recorded with Sounds True. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.